Football Americas on ESPN Plus is presented uninterrupted by Expedia. What we talked all along is is that what we needed to learn from this camp is how to play, how to beat opponents of this caliber because there's a high likelihood we face one of these teams or a team like this in the World Cup. underway here on ESPN Plus. Alongside Hercules Gomez, I am Sebi Salazar. This is episode 284 of the show. Closing in on the big three hundo. Herc, what you wearing in honor of 284? Uh, you know, a soccer shirt. Just uh, from a local bar mm-hmm. in uh, South Philadelphia. If you know, you know. How about you? If you know, you know. Yes, our good friends, the uh, Rexham owners uh, involved there at Patty's Irish Pub. Owner. I- I got a little I got a little MASL. You know my love for the indoor game. These are Empire Strikers actually from out your way. And of course we love Hummel here the, on the program. The as well. Empire Strikers are a good play on words. If you know you know. Yes, yes. Look at you, Disney man. Yeah. Corporate Herc, some might say. Lots coming up in episode 284 of Football Americas. Uh, Pablo Maurer of The Athletic is going to join us in just a little bit for the latest on the Bruce Arena New England Revolution scandal. More, if you can believe it, has happened since we were last with you on Monday. We're also going to hear from Allie Riley of Angel City, the New Zealand women's national team. She's back from the World Cup. It's crunch time. In the NWSL, the playoff push is now, especially for Angel City, who find themselves below the playoff line. Oliver Wies, he's the general manager and president of soccer operations for Orange County in the USL. And, Herc, they just had another big sale to Europe. But let's start this hmm. edition of Football Americas, presented by Expedia, with highlights from Tuesday night. The United States taking on Oman in Minnesota. Not a huge crowd. Building holds about 19,000, reported 13,000 in attendance. 13 minutes in, though, everybody was happy. Nice build up here. Serginho Desk going to hammer the shot, the rebound. Falaren Balligan, 1 0. Yeah, a few really good things here. The ball by Weston McKinney. Timothy Wea, presence of mind, lays it off. And then Serginho Desk smashes it. And Falaren Balligan, right place, right time. Good reaction right here. Left footed finish. It's a good goal. A goal getter's goal. A few minutes later, U.S. on the attack again. Christian Pulisic, the cross, Tim Way the goal, but wait a second, might want to have a second look. It, it, was this really a handball? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a handball. Uh. The chicken wing out, Matt Crocker, not happy. Well, maybe he was happy, but not with the goal disallowed. 33rd minute, Weston McKinney cross, Miles Robinson shot save. I mean, what's Miles Robinson doing up there? Weston McKinney again, picking somebody out. Nice little layoff right here, and then finish by Miles. Oh, couldn't finish. Still one nothing. Some really good moments from the United States, especially in the first half. Great build up through midfield here. Malik Tillman, Weston McKinney involved. Going to get out to Tim Weah. Herc, this is exactly what you want. Weah the shot. Just couldn't put it on target. Yeah, maybe I would have wanted Weah to respect Loon's run there. Maybe lay it off to him, but still a good shot. 60th minute. Not a great shot, but a goal. Brendan Aronson on the set piece. The U.S. Men's National Team Twitter account or X account would like you to think this was a stunner. I was stunned. <laughs> so was the uh, Oman goalie there. 79th minute. U.S. attacking again. Ricardo Pepe. Three. Nothing. Yeah. A copy of the goal he scored against Uzbekistan. Good catch and release. Good finish. A couple minutes after that, more from the U.S. Kevin Paredes on for his debut. It's an Oman own goal. Yeah. Starts with Kramaski, Paredes, own goal for the finish. 
Final score from Minnesota, 4-0. Here's Greg Berhalter after the match. Following the Uzbekistan game, we were able to look at it and, and point, point out things that we could have done better. Um, we know this is a different game. It's hard to compare the two. 5-4-1 against a 4-4-2 diamond, but I really like the mindset of the guys. I like the intensity of the group. I think Christian, um, as captain today, really set the tone with his, with his, with his intensity and work rate. Um, and that's the starting point. So I think we're, we're happy with that. Um, some, some good ball movement. Finding the opposite side of the field, getting them to shift, um, good attacking moves, overall pleased with the performance. And again, as Michael mentioned, the, the, su the solutions making a difference in this game. I thought the, the players that came in did well also. So overall, um, pleased with the entire camp. It's good to see the guys, good to get touch points and, and time with the guys. And um, it was a really good learning experience for us all in this camp. All right, her thoughts on the U.S. performance against Oman. Was it enough of an improvement from what we saw against Uzbekistan to satisfy you? Yeah, I mean, obviously more than enough. Um, solutions, you heard Greg Berhalter. Uh, he means substitutions. He means substitute players coming on, trying to make a difference. Uh, actually, that's uh, Bobby Warshaw, a podcast he used to do with Greg Berhalter while he was working for U.S. Soccer, where he explained that the solutions part came from Omar Gonzalez, uh, his ex-teammate, mm -hmm. uh, when they went to Galaxy. Um, yes, because the bar was so low, Sebastian Salazar. I mean, Uzbekistan could have been up 2-1, 3-1 at halftime, yeah. if you will, if not for Matt Turner coming up big. 1v1 saves in that game. So it was so low that you expected some sort of reaction. Not easy to get a reaction from being honest. Oftentimes you can just get into that funk, but there was a very good reaction. I mean, listen, they thoroughly dominated Oman. Um, very good individual performances all around. Not an easy thing to do when you're trying to test new faces, maybe a new formation, if you will. So from Greg Berhalter, from that part, for him and this U.S. Men's National Team, it was a very good win, a very good performance. Yeah, much improved, much improved, uh, I thought. I think we have to acknowledge the difference in quality opponents. Berhalter there talked about the setup. Uh, if you go off the FIFA rankings, there's only... Actually, I think Oman is 73rd and Uzbekistan 74. You're but right. We saw both in how Uzbekistan played against the U.S. Also, we're going to talk about it in a little bit, how they played against Mexico. They're much better. They played Oman a couple months ago and won 3-0. So I think you can chalk that up to some of why the U.S. looked better. But, Herc, for me, there were two things that I really liked about the U.S. performance. Unlike what we saw against Uzbekistan where they score in the first 10 minutes of the game, again, the U.S. got an early goal here. But they didn't let down. They didn't take their foot off the gas. You are correct to say that against Uzbekistan, it could have been 2-1 to one Uzbekistan. It could have been 3-1 to one Uzbekistan at the half. Against Oman, I think Oman was lucky not to be down 3 or 4 nothing. So we saw, one, a good start, and then the ability to keep that going. And beyond that, Herc, I think we saw not just patterns of play, which is something you always want to see, especially against inferior competition, we could pick out patterns of play, and those patterns of play were effective. This idea of getting the other team to slide all the way across the field, dropping it at the feet of Weston McKinney, and then these McKinney switches, Herc, they are damn near lethal. Maybe lethal's not the, the right word, but they're very dangerous. There's a good chance created almost every time the U.S. does that. We've said for a long time under Greg Berhalter, we don't see the patterns of play. We hear about them, but we don't see them. I'm not the most trained eye, but I could even see it last night against Oman. 
Tuesday against Oman. I'm glad you brought up the patterns of play, and I will get to those when we talk about the system. But let's stay on Weston McKinney because that's as good as I've seen Weston McKinney in quite mm -hmm. some time. Listen, I understand the opponent's Oman. I understand it's an inferior opponent. You're completely dominating them. But Weston McKinney is a big reason as to why you're dominating. One of the most dominant performances I've seen from Weston McKinney. Granted, granted again, mm -hmm. the opponent, but he was as good as you could imagine. And I was really surprised, given his club situation and lack of playing time, that he would have liked. Yeah. Clean sheet, win, and both of your number nines get on the score sheet, right? I mean, if, if you're checking boxes about as well as you could hope that it would go against Oman in Minnesota. Herc, we have a new segment to debut here on Football Americas. Cap or no cap, all right? So basically... True or false? Yeah, lie But or we're no calling lie. it cap or no cap. Lie right, or no lie. Lie or no lie. Yeah. All right, so what's our first question here on cap or no cap? Ooh, this one. Herc's going to love this one. Is it time for the U.S. men's national team to move on from Tim Marine? Cap or no cap, Herc? What say you? No cap. Now, listen to me before you jump on me, Sebastian Salazar. Mm -hmm. I am not trying to retire Tim Marine. I actually <laughs> Feels like it. ate crow during the World Cup because Tim Ream was one of the better performers for the U.S. men's national team. My job is not to be a cheerleader, it's to be a realist when it comes to things. Tim Ream right now will be turning 36 years old in a month, okay? That means he will be 39 towards the end of that World Cup, 2026 World Cup. Younger than you. All he will be doing is placeholding somebody that could be earning valuable time right now, valuable experience. A Cameron Carter Vickers alongside a Chris Richards, a Miles Robinson alongside a Chris Richards, a uh, Austin Trusty alongside a Chris Richards. The list goes on and on. All you're doing mm -hmm. is giving Tim Ree more chances to extend his career at the expense of a younger player that you could potentially give that experience to Copa America. Mm -hmm. World Cup. At some point, Tim Ream is going to show you how old he's gotten. At some point, the trips are going to be too much. At some point, he can let you down. I hope that is not the case because he did his country a great service. Mm -hmm. I hope Greg Berhalter can do as he once did with this national team and usher out the experienced older generation and bring in the new. Cap! Cap! Stop with your anti-Tim Ream ways, Herc. You want a 39-year-old at the World Cup? You know what? If the question was... I just answer the question. If the question was move on from Tim Ream as a starter, that's different. But you're talking about moving on from Tim Ream. This is a still a starter in the Premier League. Like, we got guys in the conversation for center back for the U.S., like Walker Zimmerman, who, yes, had a good run in qualifying and, yes, had a decent World Cup, Herc, but has not been lights out even this year at the level of Major League Soccer. Oh, he's soccer. been good this year in Major League Soccer. No, not Use the whole season, else. Herc. Not, not the whole season. Not the whole season. That's the thing, Herc. The, the, the bar for center backs is pretty low for the U.S. still, especially when you consider experience. Yes, when you, when you start considering experience, there's not a lot of guys with a lot, with a lot of experience at the center we, back position. And I look at a guy like Tim Ream, and I say, even if he's not your starter, Herc, he's a, a truly left-footed left center back, which I think Austin Trusty is the only other one in the pool, truly left-footed. This guy absolutely has a value. He's not an ego guy. You can, you can bring him along as a, as a backup. I mean, I just don't know why you would move away from Tim Ream totally right now. That makes, that makes no sense to me, given the yeah. level that he's playing at. I'm glad you said that, because I was going to bring up Michael Bradley and Josie Alter, who at 30 years of age, you wanted them gone from the national team at all capacity. But yeah, makes after sense. They were part of the, after they were part make, of the group that failed to qualify for a World where Cup? Where do you yes. think Tim Ream was? Hurt? 
By the way, were they part of the were they part Tim of the Ray team that got that back? Group. Did they, were they part of the team that got back to the Tim World Ray Cup? Those was two part guys. Of that group, buddy. Oh, you want to make the if you want to make the argument right now for Michael Bradley and Josie Altidore, go That's ahead. That's exactly buddy. what I said. Yes. Go ahead. Two players who have done a hell of a lot more than a lot of players on any national team in any generation for the U.S. Men's National Team. Next on Cap No Cap here on Football Americas, as producer Beto nervously looks down at his watch, is the U.S. men's national team's biggest problem the formation, cap or no cap? Uh, cap. It's not the formation. Uh, there's two things here. First, it's the health of the players because the formation is dictated by who you have and who is available. If Giovanni Reina is available, there's a chance, I hope, that Greg Berhalter's thinking maybe I don't do a 4-3-3, a traditional one, and maybe it's a 4-2-3-1 like we saw in the summer with B.J. Callahan, and he's operating as that 10. That's, that's a reality. Maybe if Tyler Adams is available, you'd say that solidifies that. Maybe if Chris Richards is consistently available, you think, well, there's another personnel. Maybe I could use a three-man center back line or whatever the case may be. That's one is health. Is A lot of these players have not been healthy enough mm. to try out different formations or perfect a certain formation. And the second one is the person picking the formations, Greg Berhalter. That's the other worry, the other big problem for me when we talk about the system in itself. You heard Greg Berhalter in the cold, cold open talking about uh, how sometimes these games could be difficult. You may play lower level teams here and how it was different because the last team was a 5-4-1 and this team is a you know, 4-4-2 with a diamond in the midfield. Stop! Stop! I'm tired of, about hearing what you're going to do because of an opponent. Mm. You're playing Oman and Uzbekistan. What is the U.S. men's national team going to do to make them react to, do, to you? It can't be that you're always trying to react to another team. And if that's the case, where were these tactics to react against the Netherlands? When Van Gaal called you out for not adjusting, you need to react to better teams, not to lesser level opponents. I don't want to see the U.S. men's national team having to think of a system for a team that's ranked 74th and 73rd in the world. Those, pa those patterns of play that you talked about, I wanna see those systems against the better teams. I wanna see those patterns of play so your nine finishes them against the better teams. I don't wanna see Greg Berhalter catering down to the 73rd, 74th place teams in the world. If there is a problem with the formation, I don't actually think it's a problem, it's a good thing. It's that there's too many guys for the amount of spots in midfield. You cannot really create a formation where Eunice Musa, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, and Gio Reyna can all be on the field at the same time. To your point, thanks to health, or maybe no thanks to health, it's rare that you actually have all four of those guys. So sometimes the formation, I think, kind of takes care of itself. I don't think it's necessarily health that's the biggest worry, Herc. I get what you're saying. There are a lot of guys who have injury issues and injury histories on this team, but every national team deals with that. And at some point, you got to go to war with whoever shows up. For me, the, the bigger question is, is form and playing time. If we're talking about problems for this team, for some big guys, Weston McKinney, Tim Weah, Eunice Musa are all huge parts of this team. Are we really sure that either of those three guys, any of those three guys are week in, week out starters at their club? That would be my, my biggest problem if there was one for the U.S. men's national team. And even that, I would say, is a stretch because you're talking about having players at great clubs. 
Yeah, I would say it's a stretch just because the history of this U.S. team. I mean, we said the same thing about Christian Pulisic. You know, he wasn't playing at Chelsea. You know, how would that affect them? And then he came, comes over to the U.S. men's national team and he uses it as a refresher. Hopefully, players like Yunus Musa, who are finding it difficult right now at Milan, and I'm sure once Champion League kicks around and they have cup competitions, he'll get time, can use that to their benefit. But the same thing with Weston and uh, Timothy Weah, who are kind of fighting with each other for time. All right, last but not least here on cap or no cap. Let's go up top. Has Valerian Balogun secured the starting striker role with the U.S. men's national team? Hurt. Cap. And listen, thank you. You can thank us, all those other uh, networks who, who are starving for content and we give it to you. That's right. There's a nine competition. There's a battle going on. I mean, we've been doing this for like three years, I feel like. For, for <laughs> more than three years. This goes way back. But Farland Balogun's a very good forward. He's a very good striker. He's just got competition. Four goals, two, uh, four, excuse me, four games, two goals. One of them was in the final, yes. But in these two games, in this window, Ricardo Pepe came on in limited time and scored in both games. And not only was he scoring goals, he was facilitating. Did you see the ball he gave Weston McKinney? I mean, the ball where he drags it into space by himself, lays it back to Weston. Weston should have finished, and he knew. There is a little element to uh, Ricardo Pepe's game. And listen, it's not just goals. 18 games, 9 goals, right? Of those 9 goals, only 2 have been in friendlies. The rest in official competitions. Fowler and Balogun's a very good forward. He's going to get his time. And a lot of it could be circumstantial, and I will get to that in a second. But Ricardo Pepe is making this a fight. He will not go down easily. It is not following Balogun's right now. He's not an automatic starter. It's whoever has the hottest hand. I gotta tell you, Herc, I think the U.S. hit the lottery with Balogun, and I think the U.S. is sitting on a gold mine with this Tridente, with this front three of Pulisic, Wea, Balogun. I think this trio could be what Mexico fans thought Chucky Lozano, Tecatito Corona, and Raul Jimenez we're going to be, which is to say a front three that can dominate in this region for a World Cup cycle and potentially at the highest level of the international game get you to transcend. That's what the U.S. is building. But I don't think you get there, Herc, by tinkering. I don't think that you get there by giving Ricardo Pepe minutes that Balogun needs to build that chemistry with Wei and Pulisic. That, to me, as I see this U.S. team, that's the real elite strength of this U.S. team going forward. I don't think Greg Berhalter needs another high-profile position battle to deal with. I think you've got to go with Balogun, and you've got to let that front three work together, Herc. You, hold on. Hold on. You got no issue with... We got no issue here, but you had an issue with Reem? Like, I, I, I don't understand this. I, why can't Ricardo Pepe fight for it? Why is Ricardo Pepe automatically out, but Tim Ream automatically in? I, I, I see a bigger gap between Balogun and Pepe than you Off do. I think th Tell me what you saw this window that shows you the biggest gap. The oh, bigger gap. This window is a small sample size. Are you going to tell me man. that? Why don't, you go back, why don't you go back Listen, to last year? Small Look at what sample Balogun size. One guy level. came on both games as a second-half substitute and scored. So, so one of the big complaints last time about Greg Berhalter was we never got the start at same 11. We, we never built a team. You never knew what it is. Now you have your front three, which could be the front three of the future, and show you want to tinker with show it. Show me what you saw from Balogun in this window that you liked. Balogun's dangerous, man. He's great off the ball. Come on. He's, he's dynamic. He does great, great runs. I'm and glad you said that because I want to talk about exactly is, how is dangerous amazing, he is. Dude. Go ahead. Next one. I want to talk about exactly how dangerous he's been. 
Oh, I don't think you've uh, read the rundown, because the next one is actually a soundbite from Greg Berhalter, who did have something to say, not just about Balogun, but about the number nine role for the U.S. men's national team. Let's listen in. No, I, think, I think we're still trying to figure out, um, you know, the best way to, to utilize Ballo because we know he's, he's high quality. He made a number of good runs behind the back line today that we didn't pick up on. Um, so he's still integrating that side of it. Um, and then, you know, for us, it's, again, we, all we want to do is put the forwards in position where they can score goals. We want to create opportunities for them, and we want them to finish it off. So... You know, I think, you know, that's that's our game. That's our game model. That's how we play, to, get, to give our forwards chances. And we, we need to get, you know, low balls in the penalty box. Um, we need them to t attack the space between the center backs. We need runs behind the back line. All those things will, will help create chances for them. So Balogun, of course, uh, grabbing a goal on Tuesday against Oman, his second with the U.S. That after being held scoreless in 45 minutes against Uzbekistan. He only played 45 minutes against Oman as well before giving way to Ricardo Pepe. Herc, an interesting moment caught by match cameras. A little back and forth between Balogun and Berhalter as Balogun headed to the sidelines. Let's read between the lines here, Herc. Is this something, nothing, or everything? Listen, this happens all the time. You know, players aren't happy when they come out. Could have been something that was planned, like in the first game where you're only going to play 45 minutes and then you come out? Absolutely. I actually think that was the case. I don't think the frustration from Balogun is that he was only going to play 45 minutes. When I asked you what is it about Balogun that you like, here's what I like about Balogun. He's got elite movement. The way he moves, finds space, is elite. He is sharp. He is crisp. He is decisive with his runs. Yes! These players in the U.S. Men's National Team is going to take them time to get used to the movement because it's a different player to find him. My worry isn't that. My worry is that this system, because I saw him deployed in a much deeper role, if you will, he wasn't getting the quality looks that one might expect. So here's my worry for both Ricardo Pepe and Fowler and Balogun. Fowler and Balogun, that you're not going to be in a system that's conducive to your style under Greg Berhalter. These patterns of play and through the history of Greg Berhalter, aren't made for the nine to finish. They're made for your wide players to finish. That's in reality, this interpretation of space is for everybody else around the nine, not for the nine. That is my worry for Flo. My worry for Ricardo Pepe is, if you have a penchant for scoring goals as a sub, guess what you will get typecast as? A substitute player. That is a worry for Ricardo Pepe because we look at the last six goals that he scored for the U.S. Men's National Team, They've come in substitution appearances. So there's a worry there for both, but it comes with this system that Greg Berhalter deploys. Yeah. This video for me is a big fat nothing burger. Right. There's nothing there. You know, I don't think I think there were some post-game comments that were more interesting when he was asked about Pepe, specifically the competition with Balogun. And he, I won't say that he threw club form out the window, but Berhalter made it seem like it was gonna be training sessions and what you do with the national team that was really going to make the difference. And he also mentioned Ricardo Pepe's pressing. He didn't mention Balogun's pressing. He mentioned Ricardo Pepe's pressing. So something to keep an eye out there. I think that's probably worth more than the, uh, the video that we saw there between Balogun and Burhalter. We got club football returning this weekend. Bundesliga on ESPN+. Plus. Kevin Paredes and Wolfsburg against Brendan Aronson and Union Berlin Saturday on ESPN Plus, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time, Saturday morning. Now, let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. 
Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And boom! Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good! The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic Liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day. But sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. Several people within the organization, whether it be on your staff, in your locker room, or just employed by the club, have come out and expressed their support for Bruce Arena. Um, how have you viewed these, and, and, and how does that kind of, I guess, make you feel or any emotions that, that come yeah. with that? Um, you know, as Adam stated, I can't get into any further further details. Um, you know, any qu- you know any questions regarding the investigation, I've you know I have to refer to the league. Richie Williams there at a press conference on Tuesday, at which time he was the interim manager of the New England Revs in the wake of Bruce Arena's resignation amidst an MLS investigation into inappropriate and insensitive remarks made by the iconic manager. Things changed quickly. Clint PA, who, like Williams, played for Bruce Arena at DC United and the University of Virginia, has now been named interim manager. Meanwhile, the Athletic reporting that Revolution players refused to train under Williams after a Arena resigned. The Revolution right now sits second in the Eastern Conference with seven games left in their regular season. For more on this story, thrilled to welcome into the show Pablo Maurer of The Athletic. He, along with Tom Bogart, have been at the four reporting this story. Pablo, great to have you with us. First things first, your backdrop is always something to be discussed. Where are you right now? <laughs> Uh, I'm in the archives at the uh, National Soccer Hall of Fame. It's just, let's take a look at this right here. Look what they did to <laughs> my boy. <laughs> what a look moment. What they did to my boy. <laughs> and you've heard soul yeah. gear back there. That's right. Uh, yeah, I got a couple Galaxy things up this shoulder, I guess. Yeah. There, there, you, go. Go. there yeah. you go. There you go. All right, Pablo. So let's try our best to dive into this story. I mean, as best as you can explain from the top, what happened here with the New England Revolution, Bruce Arena, and Richie Williams? You want me to go all the way back to the beginning here? <laughs> yep, yep. Um, yeah, well, I mean, Bruce Arena obviously was placed on leave. Uh, you know, the league investigated him for what they said were, I, I believe their phrasing was inappropriate and uh, insensitive comments. Um, they installed Richie Williams, Bruce's longtime assistant, uh, as the interim head coach for the Revolution. Um, about a month later, uh, you know, I mean, Tom Bogert, my colleague, I really several other people around the industry have sort of been digging around and poking around, um, came out with a report that suggested that at least some of the uh, complaints that that investigation was addressing uh, involved Richie Williams as assistant coach. So, you know, all that reporting obviously came out and very quickly it created a very awkward situation is what I would say, you know, in the locker room. Um, Players obviously made their, uh, you know, their concerns known to Brian Bolillo and Kernan Alfo. 
um, and other people at the Revs, ownership, etc. And uh, it seems to have come to a head a couple of days ago with Richie Williams uh, being, you know, reassigned within the organization, whatever the, you know, whatever the verbiage they're using is. Um, it's been a lot. There's been a lot. Uh, that's happened at the New England Revolution in the past month. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I'm curious, is there any way you can tell us more about the relationship of, of Bruce Arena uh, and Richie Williams and maybe also Richie Williams and the rest of Bruce Arena's coaching staff? Because per reports, it, it seemed like it got pretty tense. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Richie and Bruce uh, have a have a decades-long history that dates back to the, to the University of Virginia, Richie played for him, obviously, at DC United. They've coached together, you know, multiple uh, MLS teams, national team, et cetera. They have a very long history, um, which is what makes this situation so interesting, obviously. Um, you know, as far as the rest of the staff goes, there did seem to be sort of a schism developing between uh, Shari Joseph and Dave Vanderberg, um, you know, two versus assistants, and Richie. Um, that, is not something new um you know richie and shari there were sort of multiple altercations between them last year physical altercations even um you know the revolution things haven't been peaceful per se you know for a long time um this is obviously coming to a head here in the past week but um the cracks of all this have sort of been showing for for over a year honestly I want you, Pablo, because I, I know a lot of people who are watching this show may have read the article or the articles that you and Tom have put out, but, but maybe not everybody. If you could set the scene and take us inside the, the players meeting for the New England Revolution when they're meeting with management, because that seems like a real inflection point in terms of how the Revs, at least, were handling this situation. Yeah, I mean, I think players, I don't speak for the Revolution's players, obviously, but based on my reporting, they, they seem very frustrated with the fact that um, they were sort of kept out of the loop in terms of what specifically was being investigated, who was involved in the investigation. And look, I mean, that's, I think it's a perfectly normal thing, obviously, as an HR complaint, it's a league investigation. There's really only so much that, uh, you know, it would be like if, if I worked at a company and somebody else filed a complaint at the company and I expected to sort of be looped in on it. But, you know, it's a locker room. It's obviously, you know, you see that you read this stuff in the media, you know, you you see stuff being reported. You don't know what's true. Um, you don't know if your coach or coaches are lying to you. I mean, uh, it became a mess. So obviously uh, it came to a head with, um, uh, you know, the the refs players essentially were convened last minute a couple of days ago in the morning to meet with uh, Brian Bolillo. Um, they didn't get much more information out of that hour long, hour long meeting. So then they demanded to speak with basically the entire coaching staff. They didn't get much more information out of that meeting. Um, you know, Williams was asked whether he was involved. He basically said that he couldn't say, you know, he couldn't speak about the investigation. Again, I suspect that many of these people are just bound by league guidelines, club guidelines, legalities. There's obviously lawyers involved here. Um, you know, so I I don't want to say I feel for, I don't want to say I feel for Richie Williams or Cardinalfo, et cetera, but uh, it must be an interesting thing to have players asking these questions, the press reporting things, and um, whether it's true or not, you're not even able to comment on it. I mean, it's, it's not an enviable position. So obviously after all that, um, you know, the, the players said, look, we're not going to trade today. Um, I think it's funny 
that's sort of been walked back in recent days. You have players saying that they didn't refuse to train. You know, I do suspect it was a situation where they essentially told Richie Williams and Curtin also, we're not training today. Those two guys, I'm speculating at this point, may have said, okay, sure, that's fine. Um, that's not really a mutual decision, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that gets us up to speed. The, the players seem to have closed ranks at this point, understandably, um, and it's certainly a good thing as far as the prospects the rest of the year, but man, uh, I, I'm, I'm even having trouble keeping track of this at this point. You know, it's, it's just been a lot. <laughs> Pablo, what about Bruce Arena here? I, I mean, does he come back for the, from this, uh, or, or is it over for Bruce Arena in, in Major League Soccer? It's an interesting question, man. I mean, I think the big what if right now is what did Bruce say, right? I mean, we've all heard things, um, you know, nothing that I could get to the point where it's reportable. Um, Bruce has, you know, a tremendous legacy, uh, a huge network of coaches, former players who, you know, speak about his character. And look, he's always been a guy who, um, you know, as Jeff said last night on ESPN FC, like he's he's really the last players coach in the league, right? Um, you know, he's players tend to love him. On the other hand, he has this entirely other side where he is like 72 year old dude from the Bronx who, you know, like sort of speaks his mind, honestly, probably says things that in the year 2023, we don't say anymore. Um, you know, so, so I have no idea. I mean, I don't think it really touches his legacy on the field. I mean, the results, those results speak for themselves. He's for me, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the greatest professional men's coach in American history. Um, I did think it was interesting. Obviously, you saw in the uh, league statement that if he does want to work in MLS again, he's going to have to apply for reinstatement, which was, you know, that raised my eyebrows, I have to say. But but I don't know. I mean, it's also up to Bruce. Whether I mean, the guy's 71, 72 years old. Does he want to come back and coach again? I mean, most most people at that age are sort of packing it in to begin with, you know, so there, there's a lot of what ifs at this point. Pablo, I got to ask you, like, where does this leave the New England Revolution? Obviously, with the rest of this season, they're second place in the Eastern Conference. They've, they've had a pretty good season to this point. But I'm thinking kind of long term here, because when we hear these press conferences with Kurt Anolfo and Brian Vallello, they sound like guys who are in the last days of a contract. They don't sound like guys who are thinking kind of long term vision here. And I guess, Pablo, what the great shame of this all is, is that New England, since hiring Bruce Arena, had really seemed to turn a corner, not just on-field results, but some of the transfer moves. The revolution really seemed to be heading in the right direction. Now it seems like they got a you know, clean house in the front office before next year. Yeah, it's hard to say, honestly, man. I mean, you, you are right, though. The club has made progress. Their academy all of a sudden is producing, I shouldn't say all of a sudden, in the past couple of years now has been producing decent players obviously like you said they're they're making you know club record outgoing transfers that sort of stuff I, i'm really interested to see how this plays out not just in the front office but in the remaining games um you know i am of the mind that that this may galvanize them they are an incredibly talented team they have very very good players um you know based on what you saw out of you know the media availabilities today and yesterday uh, like i said players seem to have sort of um you know, talked amongst themselves and decided to close ranks and really stay focused. And these sort of things, you know, I don't know, they have a way of galvanizing teams sometimes. On the other hand, then if they go out to Colorado this weekend and just lose, especially if they lose in the way that they've lost games recently, you know, in the past, in the last five minutes of the match or something like that, um, it could come even more unraveled very quickly, 
right? Um, you know, as far as Pernolfo, Brian Bolello, I mean, Brian Bolello has been at the club for over two decades, has an excellent relationship by all accounts, I think, with, with ownership. You know, um, I don't know what the future holds for either of those two guys. Um, Kurt's another guy that obviously has been around the league a lot. Um, you know, I sort of have to wait and see. I mean, I do understand where you're coming from, Subby. It very much feels like a situation where they'd almost want to just blow the entire ship up and start from scratch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but who knows? You know, I'm, I'm not Jonathan or Robert Kraft. Um, I'm a lot more poor, for one thing. <laughs> you uh, wish so you had their bank accounts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> All right, there he is, uh, Pablo Maurer of The Athletic. Pablo, man, great to have you here with us on Football Americas. Safe travels there from North Carolina, and we'll uh, hope to see you soon here on the show. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm pretty sure this place is haunted, by the way. I'm, I'm like the last <laughs> place in this building at 9 p.m., and the lights keep going on and off, and, you know, I don't know. It's, you know where to find my body. You know? There you go. Hey, not a bad not a bad place to be haunted and trapped in, the uh, the – the spot where all the history in American soccer is preserved. Pablo, great stuff. Thanks as always, and uh, we'll see you soon, yeah? Yeah. Pablo Maurer of The Athletic. He and Tom Bogart just uh, crushing the reporting when it comes to Bruce Arena, the New England Revolution, that whole situation. Ten seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Your relationships. Your skills. Your customer base. How about businesses on Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash network, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash network now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash network. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. Let's talk out three. Mexico facing Uzbekistan Tuesday in Atlanta. 18 minutes in, Uzbekistan grabs a 1-0 lead through Bobir Abdi Jalikov. Yeah, when I first saw this, I was like, oh, Johan again. But no, it's Sepulveda and Kevin Alvarez. And Angulo, who didn't close down at all, but... Another time. Three minutes later, Mexico on the attack. Uriel Antuna, Raul Jimenez, his first goal from the run of play since November 2020. Yeah, man. And may have been circumstantial, but take that any way you can get it. Good finish. 1-1 late in the first half. Uzbekistan attacking. Nice counter. Azizbek Turgumbaev makes it 2-1. Yeah, just all types of wrong here by the Mexican nationals. Nobody can close down. And Memo Ochoa, thoroughly beat from there. Not his fault. Late second half, Mexico still down 2-1. Raul Jimenez again. It's amazing what a little bit of confidence can do for you. The movement is good. It's an error by the uh, Uzbekistan defense, but Raul Jimenez, he's right there for it. Mexico pushing for more. Raul everywhere. Here he is looking for the hat trick. Blocked. But wait, Uriel Antuna lurking. How about that for a goal? <laughs> do you ever see the movie Chample? You ever see that movie? Oh, this is a Champlain goal if I've ever saw one. Uh, Google it if you need to. 
He'll take him any way you can get him. Stoppage time, free kick, Uzbekistan. Shukurov beats Memo. All right, a, a few things here. You don't give him a free kick there in the closing seconds, and Memo Choa, oh, come on. Jimmy Lozano, post game from Atlanta. Dudas, mira, a mí dudas, eh, y más que dudas, veo muy claro que nuestra oportunidad es defensivamente. Eso lo veo muy claro, porque nos, nos llegan poco, lo repito, y... Eh, Y, y nos castigan, nos están anotando, pero en selección nacional es esto. No, no, no estamos en, eh, en la liga que posiblemente te puedan perdonar uno o dos veces. Aquí todos son muy buenos, todas son muy buenas selecciones, eh, algunas con más jerarquía que otras, pero jugadores buenos todo, todas las selecciones tenemos y, y así como ellos cuando nos dieron la posibilidad nosotros eh, lo aprovechamos, de igual forma fue para ellos. Mm. All right, so Mexico, a 3-3 tie against Uzbekistan in Atlanta. Herc, did L3 over the last international window improve from what we saw under Jimmy Lozano at the Gold Cup? No, but their opponents sure did. The opponents are better, right? Mm -hmm. Listen, it's uh, one thing when you're facing the worst generation in Honduras' history, a team that was literally imploding before our very eyes in Gold Cup. It's another thing when it's not a Caribbean country you're facing. It's very much a different thing when it's a team like Australia who made it to the second round that you did not and gave the world champion Argentina lots of fits. And nine of those players end up starting the game that you play against them. It's also another thing when you have Uzbekistan. And say what you will about Uzbekistan, but I'm convinced from seeing them versus the U.S. men's national team, from seeing them versus Mexico, that they qualify in CONCACAF as one of the top seven teams. I'm convinced on that. So the opponent is more difficult, but your players are worse. Mm. The individual and collective performances from your team it may be one thing to show the morale, to show the spirit, to not lose, yes, but the performances, my God, were they bad. Yeah, the individual performances for Mexico, like I'm going through the 11 and I have, I'm at this point, I have to ask myself, who is a reliable player for Mexico? If you're a Mexico fan, even if you're the manager, who can you really look at and count on that's gonna give you a good performance, right? Because there are players with hierarchy, Players who we would expect to be consistent performers for Mexico. But even, even in the game against Uzbekistan, who, yes, is maybe better than what we thought, but is still a team in the 70s of the FIFA rankings, still a team that's never been to a World Cup. Guys like Edson Alvarez weren't dominating this level. Guys like Orbelin Pineda were not dominating this level. Edson Alvarez is, by all accounts, your best player, if, if we believe the European market and what it tells us. Orbelin Pineda is one of your most informed players, the Greek Super League player of the season, and these guys can't make a difference? I mean, I'm sorry, against Uzbekistan, that's, that's deeply concerning. The, the, the collective issues for me are the defensive frailties, because we're not even really talking about Mexico giving up a ton of chances. Uzbekistan had four shots, three shots on goal, and three goals. Yeah. That's a defensive vulnerability. Again, not against elite competition, not against a front three that's really going to be known across the world, against Uzbekistan. If they can be that lethal against you, imagine, Herc, imagine what a an A team out of CONCACAF or even a good team out of somewhere else in the rest of the world. The other thing that's important to point out is this attack. This attack may have scored five goals in the two games, but I can point at all five goals and say, 
the opposition basically handed you that yep. goal. The, the two goals against Australia, mistakes. The goals against Uzbekistan, either mistakes from Uzbekistan or kind of a lucky touch from Uriel Antuna on the pass to, to Raul Jimenez. I don't think that was skill. I think that was more luck. So I can't look at the defense and, and feel better about it. I can't look at the attack, even though it was productive, and feel better about it. And the individual performances, Herc, I think are the most haunting. I think that's really the biggest problem with this Mexican national team. Whatever we want to talk about tactics, the players right now are just not playing well. Let's dive in on that as we work our way, Herc, through three, three questions. Three questions. And we'll start in goal with a very concerning individual performance. Memo Ochoa. Bottom line, Herc, is Memo Ochoa a strength or a liability for the Mexican national team? He's a strength today. And that is the problem because it, today... It is no memo, no party, because what you have fighting for a spot with memo is nowhere near memo today. Malagón, eh, Acevedo's injured. Who else could you throw in there? Um, Rodriguez, like, it, it, they're just no goalkeepers right Nobody now. Nobody with experience. Nobody Tanamena's with experience. the next most experienced, and he's 40. Yeah, today. But the problem is the World Cup isn't today. If that was the case, keep Memo. The World Cup is in three years from now, and Memo chose 38 years old to be 41. That is the problem, that every day or every game you play Memo Ochoa, there is a young goalkeeper who could be taking his lumps right now who may be better for it three years from now. That is the issue with Memo Ochoa. So it's a liability because tomorrow there will be a liability that could happen for you at the World Cup. And that's if Memo's there. And let's say he gets injured leading up to the World Cup. Well, now you've not given any experience to a goalkeeper who absolutely needed that experience. I know you saw the tweets from our colleague David Faitos, and he wants Thiago Volpi to be naturalized. So maybe if Mexico can't make a goalie, you can just uh, naturalize one of the many foreign goalies, by the way, that Liga MX over the years has brought in of great quality. Look, I'm starting to feel, I'm starting to feel like this is a liability because now you can point to many weaknesses in his game, right? We've always known crosses. I think as, as the game becomes more of a game where you benefit greatly from a goalie who does well with his feet, that's not a strength for Memo Ochoa. His great strength, Herc, is shot stopping. And when I see that set piece, and I see how we set up the decision-making that's part of that, and then the inability to keep it out, if Memo Ochoa's great strength is now no longer a strength and he's just okay at shot stopping, this is a huge concern. This is a huge concern. There's not a Mexican goalie in the pool, by the way, other than Alfredo Talavera, who has more than 10 caps. So I hear what you're saying. You want to bring somebody, you want somebody else to play, but like there's almost nobody that you could even throw in reasonably and expect them to do well just because they haven't, they haven't really played at the national so team level and even at club level. It would have been level. a perfect game for these players, for these goalkeepers. Because what's who? Memo Who's your next guy? Who's your who? next guy? Memo, Memo Chua goes down today. Who are you putting in goal? Today. Today. Oof. Today. This game. I mean, if it, this if game. It was healthy Acevedo, but he's not. No, no. Today. Okay. Available. Today. Who would you put in? Malagón? I guess so. I then mean, give I, him the experience, I my man. So. That's what because Because at some point, and this is just like Tim Ream, Memo's going to show you how old he is. That's it. Okay, you're placeholding for these kids who can use this valuable experience. It's not about today who's better. It's about who can help you in 2026. Let's go from goalies to the front line. Mexico made a big sub at the end of the game against Uzbekistan, brought on Santi Jimenez. Not to replace Raul Jimenez, but to compliment him. Herc, did Mexico look better playing with two number nines? 
Uh, well, yeah, yes, they did, but it's circumstantial because you're you're trying to push for that late equalizer, right? You're trying to push for a goal. You're 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 trying to be more offensive. So, yeah, in theory. But that's when's the last time that the Mexican national team started with two forwards? Seb, think about this. When's yeah. the last time? I will tell you. Okay, 2015 versus U.S. Men's National Team, the Concacaf Cup. Remember that? Yep. Tuca Ferretti was a coach. He started with three center forwards. It was Chicharito Hernandez, uh, Oribe Peralta, and Raul Jimenez. That's the last time. It doesn't happen, and it won't happen in modern football today, and especially not with any Mexican coach, especially not with Jimmy Lozano. There is no situation that he starts off unless he absolutely needs a result, per se, and you have to go very offensive, something like that that may happen, I don't know, in the third, fourth game of a World Cup. That's the only case of extreme scenario, so that's not going to happen. Did they look better? Yes. The situation here isn't should they play with two. It's who are you going for? Are you going for Raul Jimenez or Santi Jimenez? And I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say, okay? But Raul Jimenez looked good, and it's been so long since I've been able to say Raul Jimenez looked good. And say what you will about Uzbekistan, but there have been other players who didn't do the same thing against Uzbekistan. He scored against Australia, gave him confidence. He scores two goals in the run of play versus Uzbekistan. The last time he scored an open play goal, you said, was November 2020. Do you know what happened in November 2020 for Raul Jimenez? It was the unfortunate incident with David Luis, the clash of heads that changed his life forever, both professionally and personally. He's 32 years old and he started in the Premier League. Say what you will, mm -hmm. okay? It's Fulham right now, and Fulham's got one win, I believe, in the Premier League out of their four games. Say what you will, but it's a higher level than the Eredivisie. Is Raul Jimenez the player right now to take that away from Santi Jimenez? No, I just advocated for giving a younger player a chance with Memo Ochoa. The same thing for Santi Jimenez. Santi Jimenez, I have no doubt my man will be, in my mind, excuse me, will be a record transfer for Feyenoord, will be a record transfer as a Mexican, and do something special. But Raul Jimenez, what he's done right now, you have to respect. And as you said, could be useful. Yep. I gotta eat some crow on Raul Jimenez. I definitely gotta eat some, some crow on him. And when Henry Martin gets healthy, and now you've got Santiago Jimenez, it kind of forces an issue. Might might you look better if you if you went with two nines? I don't think it's in Mexico's DNA necessarily. You obviously gave the history lesson there. I do think this was circumstantial. This was a team that was desperate, throwing everything against an against a let's be honest, opponent that's not that good. When you throw your, your kitchen sink at Uzbekistan, you better get some goals. I actually don't know that it was the two nines that made the big difference here. I think it's Chiquito Sanchez, who again comes on and is part of a, a second half push for Mexico. That to me is a player who, along with the two number nines, is a big reason why Mexico was able to look so good. Nah, it's not so good. So much better in the second half against Uzbekistan than they did in the first. What about players, Herc, who played their way in or out of contention for the national team this window? There were some bad performances for sure. Were there any good ones? You got anybody who played their way in? I do! Jordi Cortizo, come on down. Now listen, Jordi Cortizo's changed the game against Australia, and he only played 13 minutes. He was that good. And that's Australia, good game, move it past. Comes in the second half of this game, and he was all over the place. Actually only missed one pass. 93% passing for Jordi Cortizo. Dual player up and down. Uh, the man was taking people on. He looked hungry. If I could pick one player, one player, 
that played both games. They changed both games. It's Jordi Cortizo and the producer talking about a PK they didn't call. I didn't think it was a penalty kick. I think when you <laughs> slow down the game at such a slow level, everything yes. looks like a penalty kick. Uh, but what I will say, it's a shame. It's a shame that Jordi Cortizo is the person, the man who took most advantage of his opportunity, and he debuted against Australia, his second game for the Mexican national team, this game versus Uzbekistan, and he's 27 years old. That should just highlight how much of a problem yeah. it's been for Mexico. Yeah, you say shame. It's an indictment. It's an indictment of the pool that we've got one guy who we can hang our hat on here. Maybe not one. I think there are other. I think Eric Sanchez, I think Raul Jimenez certainly played, played themselves into bigger roles this window. Cesar Huerta, of course, as well. But for me, Jordi Cortizo, I'm with you. He stands out. But at 27 year old, as a fan of Mexico, it's kind of depressing that, that your young, new player is almost 30. That's the reality. As far as guys who played their way out, whew, I could do a laundry list here, Herc. I could do a laundry list of guys. Some of this Let's is hear it. months, years of frustration. But I I'll start in the midfield with Charlie Rodriguez. He, to me, has to be the person at the top of my laundry list. And primarily, Herc, it's because of how many opportunities Charlie Rodriguez has been given. You look this up, man. He's almost got 50 caps for the national team. We talk about Cortizo being older at 27. Charlie's 26 years old. How much more? How many more opportunities? How much more run does this guy get before finally we say he's not capable of doing it at the international level? He's just not the guy for Mexico. So for me, that's an obvious one, but I think you could go across the entirety, Herc, of the back line from, from the Tuesday game against Uzbekistan. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll put an asterisk over Kevin Alvarez because he wasn't terrible, but Sepulveda with that rugby challenge, clearly not at the level. Angulo did not close. I mean, he, he looked like he was playing in practice on the first goal from Uzbekistan. He doesn't close down. And you know I've been a big Johan Vasquez proponent, but... I'm starting to think we might need to see him at left back because that's what he's playing in Italy. Uh, as a center back man, he's just not cutting it. So, I mean, right there, the whole back line to me against Uzbekistan, if they didn't play themselves totally out of contention, they certainly did not help their chances with this team. Johan Vasquez is a left center back in a three-man back, three back line. That's all I'll say about that. That's where he, if you want him, you can try it, but that's about it. As far as Char Charlie goes, Charlie's living off a game the Club World Cup versus Liverpool, Liverpool C team when Henderson was playing as a center back. He's living off that game. Mm. That was in 2019, over four years ago. That's the game he's still living off. And I agree with you, almost 50 caps, 48 caps for the Mexican national team. And I can't sit here right now and say, this was his marquee game. That was yep. the game where Charlie said, hey, I have something with the Mexican national. I can't think of one. There you have it. So uh, Mexico 3-3 draw against Uzbekistan on Tuesday to close out the international window. Hey, how about a shout out for our friends over at ESPN FC, available seven days a week for you right here on ESPN+. Plus. Wilkinson's in the middle. Wilkinson! New Zealand won. Norway nil. Hannah Wilkinson. And look at what it means. I'm so, so proud. We've been fighting for this for so long. And we had a clear goal that we wanted to inspire 
young girls, young people around this country and around the world. And I really think we did that tonight. This is what dreams are made of. Back from the World Cup and back with us on Football Americas, it's Ali Riley of Angel City FC and the New Zealand women's national team. Ali, thanks so much for making the time. I know you're very busy. Have you had a, a moment to catch your breath since getting back from the World Cup? Yes. Well, of course, made me made me tear up again with that video. Um, yeah, you know, I took about 10 days after the World Cup, had a couple in New Zealand and then and then a week here in L.A. and it's hard, you know, I think I, I could have taken more time, but I wanted to get right back into it with Angel City. So I'm sure I'll do more reflecting when, when the NWSL season is over, but all of the videos and, and pictures, it takes me right back there. And it was, um, it was such an amazing experience. And, and it's still really just surreal remembering that, that first win and how important it was to us and to the country and, and hopefully made an impact around the world as well. It, it really made me feel like, like anything is possible. <laughs> we do want to talk some Angel City, but let's flash back to the to the World Cup. I wonder now that you've had some time to kind of, as you say, process it and look at everything that happened there at the World Cup, how you look at the performance and everything beyond the field as well. All of what you guys achieved didn't make it to the knockout rounds, but certainly had some high points. Yeah, of course. You know, I we wanted to make it out of the group. That was one of our three goals. But to win that first game at a World Cup and to inspire the nation. And also, I want to add on to that, to honor the players who had come before, who had worked really hard, sacrificed a lot, fought so much, and, and hadn't had that chance to experience a win at a World Cup. So that was for all of them. And I think the performances, especially the first game against Norway, it was as close to a perfect performance as we as a national team have had, at least since I've been on the team. I felt like we still did really well, had a lot of possession against the Philippines. And that Switzerland game, you know, we had to win. They were very strategic. They knew they needed the tie. And so I think it was just a, a pretty classic tournament in terms of football and strategy and, and, and hopes and this roller coaster and emotions. And it didn't go the way we wanted to, but reflecting on what we did achieve, of course, that's, I, I always see the glass half full. I think the messages I've received and seeing the little girls now picking up soccer, returning to soccer, returning to sport, just women feeling empowered. It was it was an incredible summer and I'm still feeling feeling the effects from it, seeing it in New Zealand. And it's not just us. They were there were other nations who had their first win, historic, getting out of the group, players, these amazing narratives throughout the entire tournament all across the board. And I think we're seeing another huge shift in the growth of the game, the investment in the game. We're looking, we're looking at FIFA to get us that equal prize money in 2027, but it was a huge step in the right direction globally, I really think. Ali, let's go back to that Norway game because I think back of that Norway game and it was like 51% possession for you guys, 49 for Norway. It was like 12 shots for you, like 11 for them. It was like as close as you can get. <laughs> Talk to me about the emotion of that game. Like personally, what do you remember? Because I'm sure a lot of things are going to be a blur, but emotionally, what do you remember from that game? Yeah, well, I, I don't think we have time to go into the details, so you'll have to invite me back on because we were late to the game. Oh. And we we felt a ton of pressure going into that game. We worked a lot together in terms of getting perspective, not being too 
focused on on the result and trying to you know inspire everybody because it was a lot it was a very daunting task and all of our friends and family were there and the world was watching so we really focused on kind of how we could perform what our identity was that would make people proud when they were watching us and how we could represent new zealand so i think the grittiness we showed and and a confidence just to go out there and do our best i think we took Norway by surprise and we just kept that momentum going, not necessarily with the possession, but I think it didn't feel like they were going to score until until the very end. But we had the crowd just cheering us on, especially at the end with the, the added time and they were just peppering the goal and we were, we were kind of bunkered in a little bit and it didn't do the kind of game management strategies that we had discussed doing. Um, but just afterwards, like the rain started to fall and just everyone was crying. And I think that that game, that kind of the 90 minutes minutes plus traveling to the game, being late, having like seven, no, 13 minutes in the locker room, barely had time to go to the bathroom. Everyone's like, Allie, we have to go. We have to go. Having a very short warm up um, to then having this performance and, and then kind of the relief, the joy the optimism for the future, all of that coming together. You know, it, re it reminded me a lot of that that first Angel City game. So I feel very lucky to have experienced that kind of emotion twice in a lifetime. That's something that some people will never get to ever feel. And so to have had that twice now, I, I just, yeah, it's hard to describe. Ali, given your perspective, I, I got to ask you about the U.S. women's national team, who, of course, kind of went out shockingly in the round of 16, I wonder what you thought of their performance, the early exit, and then the response that we heard from a lot of the rest of the world. I remember, I think it was Lynette Bernstein uh, of the Netherlands coming out after the game and kind of taking shots at the Americans and how overconfident they were. Um, I wonder what you made of the performance and then the fallout for the U.S. You know, I I was able to see their games. We're in the same cities, the same time zone. Um, you know, was able to check in with Kelly, with Alex, with Alyssa, and... I, I was at the the Portugal game and I, I still had this feeling that that their mentality and and that there was a chance for them and it felt like things would fall into place. I know it wasn't the dominant team and performance that that everyone thought they would see, but for me, the, the game, the gap is just getting smaller and that's a really good thing. Of course, it's so hard for the fans in this country, but I thought their performance against Sweden was really, really good. And with the, with soccer, that's why we love it. It's a beautiful game. You can play really well. It goes to penalties. You know, you can not play well. It goes to penalties. Like, there's so many things that can happen. And so I think globally, and, and I'm really good friends with Linny, and I think you know, there, uh, there, she said a, a lot of things, and and that sentence, of course, just just went viral. But I I didn't see an overconfidence from the U.S. I saw them working really hard, trying to to get the pieces together, and I did think they played really really well against Sweden. But I think the response to me that stood out was just the negativity and the the disappointment in this team. That you know, I've been playing in five World Cups, and we just won one game. And we're so proud and there was so much positivity. And then you're looking at this team and women on that team who have won World Cups and Olympics and and to get knocked out, you know, still got out of the group, had a good performance and the the insane amount of negativity. It just it just kind of shows, you know, in sport, this is a job. It's I think the best job in the world, but it's kind of uh, it's tough to you get a lot of criticism and. It's something that I, I really respect looking at other athletes and especially 
women athletes, we're putting ourselves out there. We have families, we have second jobs, we are hustling and, and we still open up our lives and, and our careers to all of this type of criticism. So I think the U S will come back strong. You know, the Olympics is, is so close. Um, but again, the, the game is growing and you're seeing teams that maybe people didn't have huge expectations for doing really, really well players excelling these young talents coming onto the scene. So I think it's a really exciting time. Of course, I was, I was not playing for the U S I, I was very focused on New Zealand, but I know for my friends, they were really disappointed. And for those of us who are nearing the ends of our career, you really do want to go out with a bang. So I hope the players who may be on in the, in their last cycle, get a taste of that, that positivity and success in the Olympics. All right, let's talk about going out with a bang. Obviously, Angel City. You're two points behind the playoff line. Uh, four games left. Yes. Uh, where's the team mentally? What is the approach? Oh, we are just fully focused. We know that it was it was a tall task. There are a lot of people showing kind of statistics, what has to happen. No. If you count any team out before that last minute in this NWSL regular season, I think you're a fool because anything can happen. And we are... Focused on the details, focused on the performance, still, I think, refining this identity. We're scoring goals, gritty defending. Anything can happen, and we're just going to give it our all. We're just, you know, get rich or die trying. We are we're going <laughs> for it, and, and I love this team. I love the mentality. Becky is leading us in such a good way. So, you know, we're going to go for it again against Chicago. It's a really important game for us. Then we have this international break. Our game got moved, which was going to happen during that time. So I'm really glad that we'll be able to come back. And Orlando is going to be a tough opposition. So you can't sleep on everybody. It's it's super exciting in the table as usual. So, yeah, we're going to give it our all. And, and we really, really want to make the playoffs. Top six make the playoffs in the NWSL. Right now, Angel City 8, but just two points away from the playoff line. As Ali mentioned, it's Chicago this weekend. They're next to last in the table, so kind of feels like that one is a must win. Ali Riley, thanks so much for the time here on Football Americas, and great luck this weekend. Thanks for having me. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There she goes, Allie Riley. Here's a look at the full slate of NWSL weekend games. We got Louisville Houston on Friday. Houston just fired their coach. Some big games Saturday. Gotham, Washington, that's huge for the playoffs. That's fifth versus sixth. We got Portland, OL, Reign. And then again, Chicago, Angel City, Orlando, North Carolina wrapping things up on Sunday. 
And I'll tell you, as a player coming out into the field with that type of crowd, you are pumped up. Over 80,000 will be here. The largest standalone crowd in MLS history. el equipo de la ciudad y muy contento de ser de este equipo. All right, Herc, el tráfico coming up Saturday at BMO Stadium, LAFC hosting the LA Galaxy. Pressure on both of these teams heading into this game, Herc, but who do you think is under more pressure to win over the weekend? LAFC. LAFC. I know they're the defending champions, but they're on a downward spiral right now, and it's not just been Major League Soccer play. We can go into... Well, Leon in the CCL final and how they let that one slip. And then we can go into the League's Cup and how they let that one slip in League's Cup play. It's just one after the other. And now a three-game losing streak for a team that had us believing they could not only repeat but do great things. And at the hands of the LA Galaxy, who they've already lost to twice this year, this is a team right now that at least for morale, at least to have the rest of the league believing that they can still be that elite team, can ill afford to lose to a team like the LA Galaxy who, since they fired Chris Klein, have only lost once. Mm. But in that span, they've lost so many different players due to injury. Like if there's one team right now kind of playing with that house money that you don't expect anything out of, that could probably be might be the hottest team in the league right now. It's the LA Galaxy, the bitter rival. So it has to be LAFC. Hmm. I guess if you've already punted on the season from an LA Galaxy standpoint, definitely LAFC. Right now, LAFC are what? Third? Third in the West? They're, uh, they're three points from the playing game right now. So, I mean, the West is that tight, right? And LAFC's next two games, away against St. Louis, away against Philly, there's definitely pressure on LAFC here. I, I get what you're saying, that you could see their season go down go down the tubes. But the LA Galaxy right now, if they still think they have a shot, this is must win. They're four points from ninth, and there's three teams right now between them and ninth place. So if you don't win this game, Herc, and you're the LA Galaxy, I think you can pretty much kiss the playoffs goodbye, right? I've seen worse. I've seen crazier things in Major League Soccer. It's very unforgiving. But who's under more pressure? I mean, the season's been punted for the LA Galaxy from a long time ago. I think right now they have a lot of hope. I'm being serious. Yeah. I mean, Chicharito goes down as your DP. Cáceres goes down. So many players in the midfield. Marquis Delgado's been injured. Brugman. Uh, you can go just down a laundry list of injuries for, the, for this team. All right, LAFC then under more pressure according to Hercules Gomez. But what we really want to get from Herc is the pick. The moneymaker. So time for Book It. We're going to run through some big games this weekend. We'll start with El Tráfico. LAFC against the LA Galaxy. Herc, what are you taking? All right, I got a little bit of a parlay going on here. Okay, you mentioned it. A, a loss or a win 
only really does each team well. A tie won't do either any good. So it's a double chance as long as one team wins. No tie here, okay? LAFC or the Galaxy. Over 3.5 in total goals. There are always goals in these games. Go back to its history. Lots of goals on both sides. Carlos Vela owns the Galaxy. Ricky Pooch scored his uh, last two games versus LAFC. Tyler Boyd, he's been ridiculous over LAFC. So, and also, 10 and a half corners. You gotta get the over there. So that means there are gonna be a lot of shots in this game. I like this bet. There are always fireworks when it comes to El Tropico. I dig this one and it pays well, plus 285. Wow, okay, plus 285. Not a, not a payout to sneeze at by any means. All right, I'm going with my own parlay, Herc. I think we're doing a lot of parlays here. Benny Bawanga, anytime goal score. Over two and a half total goals and both teams to score. You, you mix that all up, you get plus 140. Boanga to score is not going out on a limb, no. right? But over the past weekend, he was on international duty playing for Gabon. They get a red card five minutes into the game. He gets subbed out 10 minutes into the game. So I got to imagine our guy's going to be hungry. Over two and a half goals, I mean, any time that these two play, you, you have to take the over. And both teams to score, honestly, I feel like that's that's... Pretty much another automatic play when the LA Galaxy and LAFC face off. I think outside of Open Cup, because there was a clean sheet in the Open Cup game earlier uh, this year, you gotta go back to 2020 to find the last like clean sheet between these two. So I mean, exactly. And producer Beto's telling me that the uh, the Open Cup was was B team, C team. So of course you well, throw that for out. LAFC, yes, it was. When they yeah. when they play in the league, I mean there's always crooked numbers on the scoreboard. So I'm, I'm putting that together. Not quite the, what'd you get? A plus 285 for yours, yeah. but a plus I like 140 to make money. for mine there between LAFC and the LA Galaxy. Elsewhere in Major League Soccer, another very interesting matchup. Atlanta United and Inter-Miami. The Tata Martino Bowl. Herc, what you taking? All right, I got this one. It's Inter-Miami to win. Both teams to score, plus 260. I don't even think this is an outrageous just mm -hmm. shout that Inter is going to win. Inter won against Sporting Kansas City without eight of their <laughs> players, of, of their big players who are on international duty. One of them, Lionel Messi, who by the way, is very well rested because he did not play in La Paz versus Argentina. Mm -hmm. He was actually registered as an assistant coach in that game so he can sit on the bench. So he'll be nice and sharp and ready for this team. A lot of storylines here. Uh, Tata Martino and Joseph Martinez come back to Atlanta, the place they built. Messi on turf. Mm. Inner Miami, six points off of DC United. You're DC United with two games in hand. It's a six point swing, big matchup. And Gonzalo Pineda, something tells me this could be the straw that broke the camel's back. Wow, okay, so Inter Miami to win. Both teams to score plus 260. I'm going over two and a half because I agree, Herc, that there will be goals in this game. I mean, he just got so much attacking firepower between these two teams. I've really gone out on a limb here. Messi anytime goal score. I think it's like minus 170 on its own it at is. this point. Uh, but I threw that in there. And then Giorgio uh, Giacomaki's anytime goal score for Atlanta. I think he's got three in his last four, four in his last three. He's been red hot of late. So I'm taking a couple of anytime goal scores and lots of goals in this one. We're betting on a lot of goals this weekend. That pays out at plus 235 between Inter Miami and Atlanta United. Our third game here on Book It. El Clásico Nacional, down to Liga Mekis. Club América against Chivas. Herc, what have you done? <laughs> Producer Beto, he finally got to me. All right, Chivas, money line. Listen, I'm going to be honest, okay? 
plus 400 is so enticing, I started thinking of reasons of why I should bet plus 400. Really, is it that big of a difference? And I started thinking to myself, when's the last time Club America like really thoroughly outplayed the three Gs? You know, gustar, ganar y golear a team. And I started thinking to myself, that could have been against St. Louis. I checked it, it was against St. Louis in League's Cup. What was that game? Checks notes, July 27th. It's been so long, six games have passed for Club America since, and in all six games, they've not convinced in one of those games. Sure, they've won, but they've not convinced in a team that is so depleted defensively versus a team that bounced them in the semis at home where this game will be played, Estadio Azteca, so I said, well, what's Chivas' record in Estadio Azteca. Recently, I went back and checked the last four games that Chivas has played in Estadio Azteca. They've only lost once. That last game, embarrassed, embarrassed Club America. Club America right now, a team that has a fifth choice head coach and a sporting director or president in Santiago Baños who could be on his way out. I just think at plus 400, I'll take that. Boo this man, boo this man. Uh, no surprise, I'm gonna do something markedly different than Herc with my parlay. Club America to win and over two and a half goals scored. It payout, the payout there is a plus 130. Of course, I'm gonna go with Club America. Some of that is confidence, some of that is my heart. What I really like here, and this is kind of counter to what you would usually do in a Clásico rivalry game, I'm taking the over. I love goals in this. I, I, in the recent history between these two teams, you're getting a lot of goals when they play. So I'm taking Club America at home to win and hoping for a goal fest there oh, in the Mexican Tassels. capital as uh, America and Chivas square off in El Clásico Nacional this weekend. Also this weekend, Herc, we mentioned earlier in the show the return of Bundesliga to television screens. It's the return of La Liga as well. Barcelona against Real Betis. Coverage begins at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, ahead of kickoff at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on ESPN+. More transfer news out of USL. Milan Iloski, 24-year-old forward for Orange County SC, has completed a permanent transfer to Nordstjylland of the Danish top flight. Orange County claiming a six-figure fee for the reigning USL Championship Golden Boot winner. He grabbed 22 league goals last season for OCSC, and he'll join Nordstjylland after the USL season wraps up. An impressive bit of business for Orange County, but not their first bit of European business, not by a long shot. They sold a player to Feyenoord just last month, and of course, you'll remember in June of last year, Kobe Henry was sold to the French top flight for a USL record transfer fee. For more on this, we welcome into the show Oliver Wies. He's the general manager and president of soccer operations at Orange County Soccer Club. Great to have him on the show now. Oliver, let's start a little bit with the process here on the sale of Iloski. I was reading the statement that you guys put out, and it, it turns out you guys turned down multiple offers. So walk us through what you were dealing with and how eventually you got the deal done to send him to Denmark. Well, first off, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, obviously Milan is a player that won the Golden Boot last year, and he's in the prime of his career. As we obviously have known, we have transferred, as you just said, multiple young top players into Europe. But I think for Milan, it was very important for us as a club, but also for the league, 
as a whole to make sure that the leading goal scorer from last year and arguably the purest clear scorer in the game and the USL was going for a significant transfer fees. We want to make sure we set the record straight like we did last year with Kobe Henry. These players are valuable. We're investing in these players. And let's face it, these players have a, an European value that we want to make sure we can match up from the USL. And we've proven it over and over again. And we're very happy that we came to a great arrangement here that works for the player, that works for us, and that ultimately works for the club as well. Oliver, I'm curious, and maybe this is a question coming from a, fran a fan's perspective, but how do you manage uh, the balance between being a selling club and being competitive? Because you guys are third in the West right now, but if we look at back to last season, well, you guys were last in the West, so how would that balance go for you guys? Listen, it's always a very fine balance. From day one, we said we have dual ambition at Orange County Soccer Club. That was one to win championships, which we did in 2021, and we've reached the playoffs five out of six years before that. But then also produce players and use the transfer market and sell players. But you don't get it right all the time. Obviously, we got it right perfectly in 2021. And then we sold our star forward, Ronaldo Damos, and our top young player, Kobe Henry, into Europe and didn't really replace him. And we kind of had a hangover from the 21 season. So we want to make sure that this year we were going to be up to par again. Because let's face it, ultimately, a professional soccer club, we take a lot of pride. We want to be known as a club that not only produces players, but that actually competes for championships. And I think we we got it right this year again. We had to make some changes after a slow start, but we're in a perfect spot right now to go back and hopefully compete for a second championship. And that's why we also wanted to make sure we didn't sell Milan Ilovsky in summertime. We wanted to keep him till the end of the season so our fans also get to enjoy him and we have a better chance of winning again. I'm reading Ilovsky's bio here, and he's obviously got the MLS connections with Real Salt Lake, came up through their academy and then had some time with the club and they didn't give him a first team deal. I don't think they even gave him a, a real monarchs deal, kind of their reserve team. How do we explain then that a player who, who couldn't get a contract at MLS could go to USL and not just play, right? Not just have a role, but be the, the best goal getter in the league. How does that make sense? Because to me, from an outsider, it says it doesn't make sense. Certainly he could have had a role, a role at RSL. Well, I think, you know, you have to look at talent. Let's be very honest. There's a lot of talented players in the U.S. who haven't had the opportunity to really through a pathway and get into a system where they play regularly and show their talent and showcase them to European teams. So we felt very strongly about Milan Lofsky. Our sporting director, Peter Nugent, looked at him extensively. We obviously had his brother at the club. We knew of him from UCLA. And we always felt that was a player who maybe should have come to us at an earlier stage, but he ended up going on a homegrown to RSL, but he never really collected there. So it was clear that we said, look, come to us, show your real talent, and I guarantee you there's an opportunity if you go to Europe, if you do what we believe you can do. And I think it's about maximizing the exposure of these players, and we are committed to it. We're committed to it from ownership group into the sporting side, into the front office. These players, when they have the ability, we don't care how old they are, they play. And I think in Milan's case, we took a player at age 22, a little bit older than we prefer to really develop, but he did everything he could, and he deserves to move now. So uh, credit to him and credit, I think, to our technical staff to developing. Oliver, if I'm a player, I understand the appeal of going to USL, going to a team like Orange County and developing and then going to Europe. But explain to us why these European teams have taken interest in USL players as of late. 
Well, I think they realize, again, the talent. Look, the MLS has a different business model than we in the USL, right? We run our own franchise. Obviously, our franchise is very much European-based, from myself into sporting director, into head coach, into I, you know, IDP manager. So we obviously are very close to the European market. We're big advocates of the Amer European market. We like the American players. We think if developed at the right time, that they have as much talent, if not more, than some of the European players that go through. We think the USL Championship is a perfect league to develop these players on a very high level. And we're obviously a club that wants to sell these players. We don't want to hang on these players. So when they come here, they know that if they do their business, they'll be showcased to our European partners on the European market. And the fact is now that we've shown it with six players, I think this will only open up the door for many more of these players to get a look at and actually go to big clubs in Europe for significant money. Herc, you know the rules here on Football Americas. We can't have somebody from USL on and not ask them <laughs> about promotion and relegation, especially when the owners are reportedly discussing it. Now, what's interesting is if I'm in USL League One, I'm all for promotion and relegation because I can go up. If I'm in the USL Championship, maybe I'm saying, I, I don't know how much of this promotion relegation really works for me. Uh, Oliver, what are your thoughts on promotion relegation and what it could mean to USL? Look, for me personally, from a uh, play professional in Switzerland, I've played in re promotion relegation games. And if you win, they're the greatest game ever. And if you lose, it's a really sad day. And I think they just bring a real difference uh, to the game. These are very, very meaningful games. The fans like it. And I think it could be a real difference maker for the USL moving forward. All right. Well, you got a uh, very, very big game coming up tomorrow, Friday, against Colorado Springs, available on ESPN+. There he is, Oliver Vies, GM and President of Soccer Operations at Orange County. Congratulations on all the success and good luck Friday. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it, guys. See you soon again. All right, time for our parting shot on this edition of Football Americas, presented by Expedia. Herc, Bob Bradley is back in Norway at Stabæk, where he managed in 2014-2015. This, of course, after he was fired by Toronto FC in late June. What do you think? A good move for our good friend? Yeah, man. He's 65 years old. He's going back to Europe. Hey, listen, last time he left, it ended up being like a decade. He was abroad. Egypt, La Havre, Swansea. Uh, he's 15th place right now. They're two points below the safe zone. But they've got a couple games in hand. If anybody can do it, it's Spot Bradley, who with this team has the second highest win percentage in their history. Bob Bradley Bombero saving the day. At least they hope in Norway. All right, so we will be back on Monday with another edition of Football Americas recapping all the weekend action. What, no comment about Bradley? Nah, I got love. I got love for Bob. Oh, he's maturing. <laughs> Some might say. Uh, we will be back on Monday. Lots to recap. Inter-Miami, Atlanta United, El Tráfico, El Clásico Nacional, plus uh, Christian Pulisic's first Derby de la Madonina. We'll see you on Monday. Have a great I'm weekend. I'm ashamed that I have sleeves for, for this. I'm Seb.